Hello, my name's Jack Tutor of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak to experimental musicians and sound artists about the three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Sarah Devarchi, who's a Montreal-based composer who works with all kinds of instrumental sources all across the board, acoustic, electronic, big old vintage synthesizers, um, more portable synthesizers that can be taken abroad, which comes up in our discussion, actually. Sarah has had a year of traveling and touring and playing in places as far-flung as Australia and Europe and America. And uh, I went to go see her, actually, when she played in London, and it was amazing. I have no idea what she was doing, but all I know is any time I turned my head, um, the listening experience completely changed. It was all these harmonics that were bouncing off the walls of a venue called Rye Wax in Peckham, that you're just stranded in this ricochet of drones and sound, and it's all at once moving at a tectonic pace, but also incredibly quickly as well. There's a lot of micro-sized behavior that's just pinging back and forth on all over the place. And uh, I did a review of the gig, actually. It's much more coherent than I'm being now. So go to attentionmagazine.co.uk um, to look at that. Also, go there to check out uh, links to Sarah's website and also more information about the releases that she picks. That's at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. And without further ado, this is a lovely conversation. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Here's Crucial Listening with Sarah Devarchi. Sarah, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hello, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So you're on tour right now. You're actually in Glasgow. You played a set last night. How has this tour been? It looks like you've been all over and played in some pretty wonderful places. Yeah, it's good. It's kind of, it's, I've essentially been on tour now for a little over two months. <laughs> um with a bit of some breaks in between um it's been good though it's i've played in a lot of places i've never played in places i've never been to i went to australia at the end of june for a couple weeks uh, and that was really amazing it was winter there also so that was nice yeah it's been good everybody's been really friendly the shows have been good people have been coming it's a different experience not to like bash playing in North America, but it's a pretty different experience playing in Europe than it is playing in North America. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> and have you had like a central set of ideas that you've been carrying with you and performing each time? I mean, it looks like some of them may have been perhaps instrument specific because you've been playing on organs and the like in cathedrals. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, um, that's kind of a thing that I've been doing. I started doing it years ago. Um, I did it for my master's degree when I was at Mills. I did a thing for pipe organ and electronics. And since then, I've been like any opportunity that I can get to play a pipe organ, um, I've been taking advantage of. But it's not easy, <laughs> of course. So, yeah, when I get the opportunity to do like special things like that, or even having like, you know, if I go to a city where I know a lot of people, if they're, you know, other like string players or whatever who I can get to play with me, I like to do stuff like that. But it's hard when I'm on tour because I am restricted by what I can bring with me. Um, and I, up until this summer, up until this tour, I was just kind of taking like random things, like whatever was small enough or whatever I felt like using at the time. Um, but all of that stuff is like older, more like precious gear that really shouldn't be taken on tour right. <laughs> or like move that much. And it shocks me now that I like for years took around like my synthy on tour, which is crazy. Um, so I bought a, uh, a reissue of the Arp Odyssey that Korg did a couple years ago, and it's been really great. It sounds really good. It feels like, uh, like the problem I have with a lot of reissues is that they just feel like flimsy. They just don't, you know, like the knobs and, and everything just don't feel, um, good. And, uh, this one, they did a good job with that. So it feels like playing the original and it sounds like it. Um, so yeah, I've just been playing that because that's, it's small and it's easy to take and it's, you know, if it breaks, it's not really a big deal. And have you noticed over the course of using this piece of equipment, any particular development, I guess, over the course of playing in all these various spaces, are you more acquainted with its capabilities or where it sounds in different environments? Yeah, I mean, the spaces for sure make a difference. I notice that more than anything that, like, even for no, like, explicable reason, I'll have, like, the same kind of set, like, the same, like, on my end feels the same, and it just sounds completely different, you know, either good or bad, just based on the space. And sometimes you can tell, you know, you walk into a space and maybe it has, like, low ceilings or maybe it's it just has, like, pillars or whatever, and you can tell certain things are going to happen with the sound because of it. But sometimes it's just, it does, there's no reason why it, why it should sound different. But, I mean, everything, you know, PAs are different and stuff like that always affects it. But in terms of the instrument, I mean, I've been, on the first part of the tour, I kind of, you know, I figured out a live set and I was just kind of sticking to it because that's, you know, what you do usually. And, uh... I, you know, I just bought the instrument and I'd never owned an original Arp Odyssey. I'd played them a couple of times, but it's not really an instrument that I knew very well. Um, so I didn't really get the chance to like experiment with it much until I got to Australia. Um, I went to visit a friend, uh, Ariel Kalma, who's a sort of a new age kind of composer from the seventies. Um, he's still doing stuff today, but he lives in Australia and I went to record with him for a day. And, um, that was like the first time I really got to like explore other things on the instrument, And I feel like I, I left knowing it a lot better. So that's been nice to be able to feel like I can sort of move away from my standard set. You know, like if I want to do something a little different or like add in something, it's not going to be a surprise when I do it live now. Yeah. <laughs> What will be the, maybe it's too early to, to tell, but the 
output of those recordings you did in Australia? Uh, I'm not sure yet. I mean, I actually have yet to listen to all of them. We recorded all day. So we have like hours of, of recordings and like I've basically, I've just been on tour since then still. So I haven't had a chance to listen to them properly. Um, but I'm not sure yet. It'd be nice to be able to sort of pare down some stuff and then release it as like a collaborative project. That would be fun. Awesome. Well, we should proceed into the, I guess the center of crucial listening, which is as always, I've asked you to, produce a list of three records that you consider to be important and mm-hmm. one thing i found interesting is just finding out from people the process they went through because i've had a, ver- a variety of different reactions from people in terms of w- what route they went down or what came into their mind when they considered what records would be um would work best as a, a three i guess so what were your kind of what was your thinking for coming up with the your list i mean the initial thing for me was just kind of thinking of like what albums had stood out to me as being like important in my personal trajectory like what albums you know did i like cherish when i was sort of getting into that kind of music or when i was starting to make music and um yeah i think the other aspect that I didn't, it wasn't like a defining thing, but I also kind of wanted to explore different genres. I didn't want to have them. I easily could have picked like three, you know, like prog records or whatever that were like really important. Um, but I didn't want to keep it. I wanted to, you know, explore different sort of genres. Um, and I found it interesting cause I, when I was thinking about them, I found a lot of the same things, a lot of the same threads going through them, even though they were seemingly, very different paths and different approaches to to music making so if you wouldn't mind introducing your first pick and just telling me a little bit as well about why it's important to you so the first record i picked um is a record by pink floyd um it's uh, adam hart mother um which i think is their fifth yeah their fifth record and Adam or Mother, I mean, it's not like a well-known Pink Floyd record. I don't know. I never like, I never had like an in-between moment with Pink Floyd. Like I, I didn't really listen to them that much growing up. And then when I started getting into them, I got like way into them. Like I, I never had like a, you know, oh, I've heard like Dark Side or whatever. It was just like full into the discography. So I don't really know how this record is perceived by people who are kind of indifferent to the band. But what I think is interesting about Pink Floyd, I think they're like a really overlooked band from that era, because I think they're just kind of lumped into like the classic rock canon, you know, and when people do think of them, they think of dark side or the wall or whatever. And those are, you know, special records in their own right. They're not really my favorite Pink Floyd records by any means, but um, their earlier stuff, um, like in this era, the early 70s, Adam Hart Mother came out in 1970, I believe. Um, yeah, the other records like Metal um, and the Moore soundtrack, and Obscured by Clouds, they're really like uh, really kind of experimental and like progressive for the time, especially, um, Adam Hart mother starts out with one track. That's the entire side 
which was kind of unusual for that time. And I mean, it's still unusual now for bands to do that. Uh, and it's also this giant, like orchestral suite almost There's no vocals. It's, uh, it's really reflective of what I admire about that era that it, it kind of blends these more common, you know, like popular instruments for the time, like guitar and Hammond organ, things like that with, you know, a choir and strings and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then the second side is more like, you know, like folk rock kind of songs that are just really pretty, I think. I will say it's been really interesting doing this podcast because this is, I think, the sixth episode I've recorded. Uh, no, seventh. And I've had three. Pink Floyd have been picked three times. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I only noticed it one other time. What were the other albums that you picked? <laughs> just metal twice <laughs> yeah which is uh really interesting because i mean i'm someone i guess who has only really um never really listened to pink floyd like up until very recently and then um my girlfriend was like her dad grew up with pink floyd and she was like oh you should hear dark side of the moon and i was like okay mm-hmm. fine and so i heard that and then I haven't really heard any other of their works until people started throwing metal at me as their choice. I mean, it seems that there's a, throughout the guests that have picked Pink Floyd, an appreciation for this post Sid Barrett pre dark side era of the band. I mean, is that a particular era that you find particularly interesting in terms of their, uh, their development? Yeah. I think, yeah, for sure. That was when they were doing their most interesting stuff. It's funny that metal was brought out because for me, metal was like the slow burner. That was the one out of that like group of records. That was the one that it took me a while to get into. Um, I'm more a fan of, like I say, Adam Hart Mother and Obscured by Clouds, um, which is also a soundtrack. Um, and then there's a more soundtrack, which is incredible also. Yeah, I mean, you hear things that don't... I mean, Dark Side of the Moon is such a different record. There's so many different kinds of sounds, and the production quality is just so, like... It's just such a different band, you know, to me. Um, But you still hear a lot of, like, especially in Adam Hart Mother, you hear a lot of the things that come out in later Pink Floyd records as being, like, really characteristic of the way that all the members play. Um, Like, especially Rick Wright, who is their keyboard player, you hear a lot of idiosyncratic things that he's doing in the earlier records, which are just incredible. Like he was such an underrated um, keyboard player of that era, I think. Um, but it's funny. Cause I, I also, in addition to Adam, her mother, um, my other favorite Pink Floyd record is wish you were here, uh, which is after dark side. It came out in 1975. And that one's interesting. Cause I think, I think what happened essentially is they made so much money with dark side and that was like, you know, they could essentially just do whatever they wanted. And so they went into the studio without caring about making a successful record. And they made this really weird, like synth record, which is, uh, I think in a lot of ways, similar, um, in vibe to Adam Hart mother. It has these extended tracks, the shine on you crazy diamond tracks. But yeah, definitely that earlier era of Pink Floyd is a really interesting one. I like Sid Barrett's solo stuff, but I'm not, um, his Pink Floyd records are not my favorite of theirs. 
one thing I've noticed reading about these records that seem to sit in, I guess, what seems to be their experimental phase mm-hmm. is like how fraught they seemed and how much, um, how many obstacles there were just trying to make this music come into fruition. Um, yeah. It sounds like the orchestral arrangement was hard going to uh, produce on that opening track. It sounds like a lot of the session musicians were like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, which is funny. I feel like that's always kind of like a trend whenever you bring in, you know, orchestral musicians. Um, I guess maybe with the exception of like the Wrecking Crew most most people were kind of like, what are we doing? But it's like, that's your job. As a session musician, you kind of, you, you do it, you know? I always remember um, reading about uh, when Eno recorded um, Here Come the Warm Jets, that, you know, he had so many session players recording just like a ton of material. And apparently when they heard the record, when it was finished, a lot of them were like kind of upset because they were like, what is this? That Like, this is not what we played. Like, you completely... <laughs> messed it up you know <laughs> he turned it into this weird thing um but it's you know it's kind of a funny dynamic because it's true that is that as a session musician that's your job you're not you're not the composer you're hired to play written music even if you don't like it but i um i was recently last time i was in london i went i paid about 20 pounds <laughs> to go see <laughs> Um, the Pink Floyd exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And it was absolutely mind-blowing. If you get the opportunity, you should go see it before it closes. But they had, on the section, they had, like, each album had its own section. And in the Adam Hart Mother section, they had some of the scores from the vocal works. And that, I don't get, like, starstruck very easily, but... Um, when I saw that, I was just like, you know, reading along with the score and hearing it in my head. And it, it gave me like this weird tingly feeling, you know, oh, wow. it, was, it was interesting to, to kind of see, you know, that really early, like sort of primitive version of somebody. Cause it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like a formal score. It was just sort of handwritten with different colors for different uh, numbers of voices and things like that. Um, to see it go from that to this recording that, you know, meant so much to me when I was younger was kind of a special moment. <laughs> wow. And so when did you actually, do you, do you have a recollection of when you first heard it? Yeah, I don't remember exactly when I first heard it, but I remember when I was like listening to it a lot. Um, I was probably like 18 or so, 19 maybe. And I remember um, I was living, I was still living with my parents in um, in Calgary, in Canada, and they were living in this like really like on the outskirts of the city, not like rural, but like really close to like basically in the middle of like a forest. And so I remember listening to this record and I was just like in the summer, I remember walking around and like just sitting like in a field. <laughs> And listening to this record and having it just, like, be the only thing I wanted to listen to. Um, And I remember that was probably the first time I, like, started to appreciate 
um, music from that era. Cause I kind of grew up, I have older siblings and I grew up listening to like classic rock basically. So that's kind of, it's been like a big thing in my life. But I remember hearing this record was like the first time I realized that there were like other aspects of classic rock that weren't just like, you know, guitar, drum, bass, vocals, whatever that, you know, there were bands that cared about these other concerns that I was also interested in having, um, also grown up playing classical music. So yeah, I remember sitting in a field in Calgary and listening to this record, probably on repeat one summer when I was like 18. Do you uh, recall how you kind of felt about the last track on this album, which when I was, so I listened to this yesterday when I was out running and then that kicked mm-hmm. off and I was like, oh wow, this is a bit of a a shift. It felt a bit strange as well running through my town centre listening to someone <laughs> making breakfast, but yeah had you had much exposure to stuff like that prior to that point i mean kind of i um maybe not right at that moment like when i started listening to it but pretty or uh pretty soon after that um like when i started university um i was taking music classes and learning about like 20th century music and you know, like tape music and stuff like that, that were big concerns sort of around the mid 20th century. And so to me, whenever I hear those kinds of experiments, I guess you could say in like more popular music, um, I can't help but hear it as just being like a thing of the times, you know, that like people were like incorporating, it's almost like a Cajun kind of thing where like people are incorporating noises from, you know, making breakfast or whatever and framing it as an aesthetic sound. So, yeah, I mean, when I heard it I, the, for the first time, I think I didn't really think too much of it. I was just like, oh, yeah, okay, it's somebody talking. I can hear what he's doing. You know? <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't think of it conceptually until maybe like a year or so later. And, and even then, like I say, it wasn't like I was just like, okay, this is what's going on. That's what was happening at the time. And that's what they were kind of tapping into. So it never really struck me as being particularly weird. I was more blown away by the first side, the fact that it was just like a single 20 minute track with an orchestra. That to me was more like remarkable than, than having the recording of, I can't, I read this recently of who that guy was, Alan. I feel like he was our tour manager or something. Oh, the, the, um, the breakfast guy. Yeah. Yeah. Is there roadie? I think at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 I heard that they've performed that piece. Uh, I think they did it in Sheffield, where they just play a bit and then stop and eat some breakfast on stage <laughs> and then carry really? on again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which sounds great. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to get your uh, your second pick, then, please, Sarah. Yeah. Um, so the second record I picked is a little bit different, different era, different type of music. Um, it's by a composer called Alistair Galbraith. 
I don't, again, I don't really know how well known he is. He's not really somebody I like talk about with other people that often. So I don't, I don't know if he's known that well, but he's a, a lot more of a recent composer. He's still, you know, he's still around. Um, but he kind of came out, um, in like the late nineties, early two thousands, which is, um, when the record that I chose of his, which is called cry, um, came out in 2000. Uh, he's from New Zealand and I presume he's still based there. So I've, I mean, I've never seen him perform. I've never seen like tour dates anywhere nearby. I don't know anybody really who, who has seen him or like knows him. And I actually don't even remember how I heard about him or how I got into him. He was associated with the whole flying nun scene. So I don't know, maybe something through there, but, um, yeah, his, his music is, you know, there's a lot of that era of, of experimental music that's really engaging, I think, and really special, um, not only in like compositionally, but just in like the intimacy of the recording quality. But for some reason, his music really stands out to me. Uh, and it has for years and this record in particular, um, I sometimes kind of listen to it and I'm like, oh, okay, that's what music should sound like, you know, like it's, it has all the qualities that I really appreciate. Um, and his instrumentation I find is quite interesting. Also, he uses a lot of organs and, and, uh, I think he plays viola or violin also. Um, and a lot of tape manipulation and things like that. And there's a really nice mix, especially on this record between tracks that are, I know it sounds weird to say, but I always, in like a lot of current music, I feel like there isn't enough music that's in like a major key or like something resembling a major key. A lot of it is like more brooding and, you know, kind of morose or melancholy. And that's great. I love that kind of music a lot. But I think it's nice that he creates this sort of balance between things that don't really sound particularly one way or the other, I guess. Hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of a detail in a lot of music that I look for and that I appreciate when I hear it. But yeah. I don't know. You said you knew this record. I don't really know anybody <laughs> <laughs> who listens to him. <laughs> it was re-released in the last few yeah. years by my music, MIE and it came into my inbox and for some reason I had heard and had listened to relatively regularly about 10 years back, his album long wires in dark museums, um, mm -hmm. which was, so that was my only exposure to it, uh, to him. And I listened to this, I think maybe once through and was like, yeah, blimey this is the same guy and it was quite a leap away from cry but listening to this album again now um oh man it's amazing and what i was so delighted to hear is that he recorded it on a four track in a shed well, yeah <laughs> which is what it sounds like exactly you know yeah it does yeah exactly i actually haven't heard anything after this record and i said a couple since then but i haven't i haven't heard them what other records of his have you heard um i've heard mirror work and i've heard talisman which are the two i think right before i can't remember which one's first 
but they're like mid late nineties. Um, and they're kind of similar. I think, I think he has a couple, uh, earlier like full records before that too, which I've not heard, but they all have like a similar quality to me. Um, but cry for some reason, I think compositionally it's, it's stronger than the rest of them. It's a little bit more like structured, which I, I appreciate like structured as a record. I mean, as opposed to like individual tracks as well. Like there's, um, a lot of like abrupt edges in terms mm-hmm. of instrumentation, but also tracks. It's, I love pieces of music where there's no finesse around the ending. It's just like done and it's gone. Just stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I like that. I like that also. Um, his music reminds me a little bit of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Ezra Buchla's music. Only because um, I read you mention um his name in an interview actually earlier today yeah 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 he his music i think i compared him in that interview also <laughs> to yeah. alistair Galbraith. it reminds me a lot of it in that way partly in the instrumentation but there are a lot of those like like you say like it's rough rough edges like where it things sort of stop and start very abruptly which maybe for me maybe that's why i find it particularly like enthralling because i never do that or rarely I do the opposite where things like take like a minute <laughs> to fade in. Or out. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think there's like a, a really intimate sort of quality about what he's doing. Um, and his vocals are also very like, you know, I find a lot of people who experiment with, you know, using four tracks and stuff like that. They often do a lot of vocal manipulation, like they do overdubbing or chorusing or whatever in the vocals. And his are not that way. They were just very like, the vocals are almost kind of, to me, they sound a bit like a commentary or something on what he's doing. You know, like the music is there and then he's kind of like just inserting sort of his own little like interpretation of, of the sound through the vocals. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. A little con, but I think like little details like that that I hear in a lot of music, those are the things that really stand out to me as, as being interesting, like those kinds of choices that people make, especially about production and about um, layering and instrumentation and stuff like that. And I think, I think on this record, it's really, it's not like anything else that I've heard since even. Yeah. I mean, his voice sounds so nice. I had headphones on and this, something about the texture of that voice when it's right inside your head um just such a delight (laughs) i'd be curious to know what he does live if he even plays live uh nowadays yeah because i think i read somewhere about he's been doing stuff since maybe the 80s oh yeah 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 He's been kind of quiet yeah. for the last, like, ten years or so, I think. There's something about this record, and I think, as you were saying with the vocals, they're like a commentary, but um, that it's not really something which is necessarily designed to be exhibitioned, more so just to be documented, which, I don't know, gives it kind of a, a vicarious sensation, I think, when I was listening to it. I was like, oh, you know, this just sounds like someone's pinched this tape from him and put it out, but it, it sounds very right. private, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can understand that for sure. And I think the other records that I've heard have that same quality 
also. But I mean, I think again, that's just the way I hear it is just, it's sort of like a production choice to have things be a little bit more like, you know, a little less clean and a little bit more just like, all right, then this is going to happen or now that's going to happen. And I'm not going to worry about, you know, whether they need to be more refined Hmm. Which, yeah, again, maybe I just appreciate that because it's so different <laughs> from what I do. could have your final choice sarah yeah so the third record i had trouble picking a third record because you know again i i like i say i wanted to kind of touch on different um genres for lack of a better word that had been important for me and uh anyway so this record that i picked um was terry riley's shriek camel even choosing a Terry Riley record to include is, is kind of a difficult one. Um, but this one has always kind of stood out to me as, as the main one. Um, this was kind of the first Terry Riley record that I listened to like as a record. And I've always kind of, I think it's interesting in like experimental music, the concept of having like a record, because I think a lot of what was happening at that time was a bit more like, you know, I guess I, I got into this kind of music through Lamont Young initially. And, you know, that sort of practice is a lot more sort of ephemeral where like, it's, you know, there's no score, things are recorded live and then they're not released. And, you know, it's like, it's a little bit harder to document and that's kind of part of it, I think. Hmm. Um, so I remember this, like thinking that it was kind of weird that I was listening to like a record, you know, by this experimental composer and I still every time I like pick up a record that somebody released of experimental music from that era it's always kind of novel to me a little bit um but I had heard you know obviously before I heard this wasn't the first Terry Riley that I had ever heard but I'd heard you know sort of like the standard like in C and rainbow and curved air and stuff like that which you know I appreciate that kind of stuff but that's not the Terry Riley that I prefer. Um, and I guess in contrast to what I said about Alistair Galbraith having this sort of like nice balance between sort of lighter, you know, like more, I don't know what kind of word to use other than like major key sounding music in, um, in balance with more like brooding kind of tension based music. I prefer the more like reflective Terry Riley pieces. I find that in C and Rainbow and Curve there um, they just don't really do anything for me emotionally. They're a little bit too, like, you can hear the process too much in them for me, and, and it's a little bit too, like, surface level, I think. And I think his method of composing, and, and especially the way that he, like, did the live stuff, like playing live and, and delay and looping and stuff like that, I think that really shines in recordings like this and also like Persian Surgery Dervishes, which was the other record that I was thinking about choosing of his. Um, yeah, I think when it's a little bit more 
there's more like tension in the sound. Uh, I think that's where his music really, really shines. And this record was also kind of a weird one for me to listen to when I did. I probably heard it around the same time as the other two records too, actually, which is, I hadn't thought about before. Um, but yeah, like when I was around 19 or so, and it was weird because this was like the first real music that I had heard that was in, that was not in equal temperament. And, um, I think before I even like knew details about what that meant, you know, like the sort of mathematics behind it, I could tell that it, it was having a different effect on me and that it, it had a different sort of emotional impact as well as uh, an acoustic impact. You mentioned there that you could have picked Persian surgery dervishes. I mean, was there mm-hmm. a, was, it, was there something about Sri Camel? I mean, Persian surgery dervishes I've, I've heard of, I had, I wasn't familiar with Sri Camel at all. Mm. Was there anything in particular about this record, which edged it as a choice? Um, I mean, again, for me in the same kind of way as like the Pink Floyd record where it was like, it was kind of the first one that I like really listened to and was like, Oh, you know, this is kind of interesting. It's like, I'd heard other stuff, but this was the first one that I really like paid attention to. And it's the one that made me appreciate Terry Riley more than just like, um, his contributions. It was, you know, the kind of thing that I actually like wanted to listen to from him. And I mean, I like that it's a little bit more structured, like I say, as a record, whereas when you listen to Persian Surgery Dervishes, you get more of this sense of it being a performance, being, you know, this thing that was just kind of happening live. And that's always an interesting thing when you when you watch Terry Riley. Like, I've seen him play a few times, and you always get the sense, not that he's not trying, but, like, I don't mean to um, imply that, but, like, when you watch him play, you can tell that he's just like, he's so good that he's just sitting there doing it. And it's almost like autopilot or something for him. You can like almost picture him like thinking about something else while he's doing all this crazy keyboard parts. Um, and I think that a lot of that comes out in records like Persian surgery dervishes, where it feels a little bit more like it's just kind of happening in the moment. Whereas with Shree Camel, to me, it, it you know, there's a, a large portion of it, obviously, that, that does sound that way and, and a little bit more improvised, but it sounds more intentional to me, especially it's divided into different tracks that are very different and it, it charts the course of, of a record. And I, I am really interested in records as records, you know, like laying out sequencing and stuff like that, especially from this era, which, like I say, is not as much a common thing. So, yeah, I think that for me was a little bit more uh, compelling than the sort of like train of thought performance of Persian surgery dervishes. You mentioned there as well about the use of just intonation. Um, Mm -hmm. What I find really interesting about this work is that there's an instrument that sounds particularly striking, I think, as something in just intonation because... I, I guess it's like a a keyboard played like a keyboard and I think my mind immediately goes to the rigidity of a lot of instruments like that where you know they yeah. have a preset build to them and the way they produce sounds and mm-hmm. there's something really striking about hearing that on a slant at least yeah. to my 
you know, naive sure. little yeah, Westerners. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, yeah, that was, you know, the inherent problem with the keyboard was that it was too, too limited. You know, everything had to be tuned a certain way. So they, they picked equal temperament, which I, I've always thought kind of interesting that like the two people who started all of that in, in minimal music, you know, um, I'm talking about Terry Riley and Lamont Young were both keyboard players. Um, I think at their core, I mean, they played other instruments also, but, and they both did a lot of work in tuning for keyboard instruments, you know, like Lamont Young has the well-tuned piano, which I think is kind of, again, that speaks to something that I'm sort of interested in as a composer, because I gravitate towards instruments that I view as like instruments. Like what I mean is that instruments that have limitations and that, you know, they can only do so much. And like when you play them, you're kind of playing that instrument. You know, I, I don't use the computer as an instrument so much, um, or, you know, software programs like Maximus P or whatever, only because they're too open for me. I don't like to work that way. I like to take something and like figure out what it is as opposed to sort of building something up. And I think that's really interesting that they were doing that with these keyboard instruments, because that's essentially what they were doing. They were looking at this thing that had limitations, and then they were tuning it to behave the way that they needed it. And, and that was kind of it. Like, you know, during the well-tuned piano, it's he spent hours tuning it, but once it's tuned, that's it. He's not going to, you know, it's not like a guitar player who can do all these different tunings in between songs or whatever, you know, it's kind of, it's stuck the way that it is. And I think that's really interesting to, to work within those limitations. And I think it's interesting that that's what they were kind of doing. But I mean, the, the organ that Terry Riley's playing in this, um, is a Yamaha YC 45 D, uh, which I bought actually a couple years ago, I bought one and I've, I've not done it because I don't know how, <laughs> but I <laughs> think like, I really want to like tune this you know, the way that, that he did. I know that it's possible. So <laughs> yeah. I kind of, but, but, um, yeah, it's, it's different, I guess, with electronic instruments. Cause it's not a matter of just like tune, you know, turning a string back into place, like on a piano. But yeah, I mean, the just intonation aspect of it, I think is a little bit, it's interesting for this record because, um, I think it's not as noticeable or it's not as like, um, you know, it's not like a thing that's part of the packaging or whatever. Like, it's not, you know, like when you read like on a Lamont Young performance or something, the tuning is such a big part of it, you know, and that's like kind of what the thing is about. Whereas for Terry Riley, the tuning is kind of just like a, a tool that he used, but it's not, it's not what he's focusing on in the music. The music is more about the process and about the layers and things like that. Uh, it's still about like musical aspects. And so, like, I always play this piece, um, the first piece on the record, um, like when I do like teaching or whatever, if I'm talking about just intonation, I like to play this piece because it's different from just hearing, you know, like a, a, a fifth, an interval of a fifth tuned to just intonation and just listening to that. It's, it's different when you actually hear it in a more like overt musical way. Um, and that's not really something that you get a lot of opportunities to do. So I think when a lot of people hear this, if they don't know that it's in just intonation, there's something off about it, but also I think they wouldn't necessarily point to that unless they knew, hmm. um, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. And it wasn't until I read it, actually, I was like, ah, yeah, there's a lot of, it's like familiar about it. It just sounds a little off. <laughs> yeah. And 
as you say, I mean, I'd not really thought about it until you started talking about it, but with this record, I mean, there is, there does seem to be, like, the tuning is just one of many facets rather than the central underpinning of the record. And there's the definite sense as well, as you say, it's a very structured record, that each of these pieces could have been an hour-long deep dive into the potential of that particular configuration, whereas there's a structural restraint where, you know, I was blissing out a bit listening to this this morning, I'll admit, and then yeah, a tight 13 minutes and it comes to a close. Um, and there's that cognizant discipline, which isn't like he's not woken up five hours later and be like, whoa, where am I? And, and you know, it's, yeah. it's all very aware. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a nice cognizant discipline is a very nice <laughs> expression for it. I think and so it's like, I think it's what make t- makes Terry Riley a really interesting composer because especially from that era, I think out of a lot of those composers, he was the more, I don't want to say the more musical one, but he, like I say, the process behind everything was really just sort of one part, like you say, one part of it, one aspect of what was going on. Um, and he was using it in service to more like traditional musical ideas. And you hear that even, you know, even in like in C it's, there's, there's a, an arc to the piece that's different from what's driving the notes or the note choices behind it, you know? And there's always, I think the way that his music is presented um, from his point of view, there's always, you know, I think everybody who like interacts with him will say that he's like a super humble person and he's, he's not very like intellectually, what's the word? (laughs) He's not like Lamont Young in the sense that like, it's, it's hyper intellectualized music, you Mm -hmm. know, like he makes a sort of a big, a big thing about what's behind it. Like, I, I don't know what the tuning system exactly that he's using on Shree Kimmel is. Uh, maybe it's in the liner notes. I haven't actually haven't looked at it in a while, but it's, it's a lot less like, uh, intellectualized, I guess I would say, but it's, it's still a very present part of the sound, um, which I appreciate, you know, that he's not like, he's not kind of forcing it on the listener. He's just assuming that they have a a good ear and they're going to, they're going to hear it regardless. Yeah. I also, uh, you mentioned about how this record connects with that sense as well that you enjoy exploring instruments with inherent limitations. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing you brought up when you did an interview for my website actually was the idea that you also do compositions for particular archival uh, so not archival like old vintage synthesizers uh, as a means of like a almost as an archival process where you're giving them an opportunity to just stand on their own i mean is do you think that feeds into your connection to this record yeah i think so i mean again it was also one of the first records that i can remember hearing for electronic music that was like specifically 
a certain type of electronic music or sorry, electronic instrument, um, that wasn't a synthesizer. You know, obviously there's a lot of synthesizer records that are standalone. Like this is for the Moog C through three P or whatever, you know, but for other types of electronic instruments, um, like this is a, a combo organ. It's very rare that you hear a record that just, uh, sort of showcases the instrument on its own. And yeah, that was definitely appealing to me. And like, even the, you know, at the time when I was getting into this and I was first starting to make electronic music and, and one of the concerns is, you know, for me, I separate recording and performance pretty distinctly. Um, and so one of the, the things that I struggled with early on was how to translate what I was doing into a performance and, looking at, you know, these pictures of Terry Riley, like, I don't know if you've ever seen recordings of him playing this stuff or the Persian surgery dervishes stuff, like in the, the gatefold for that record, there's a picture of him sitting on the floor with his organ and it's, you know, there's carpets around him and he looks very comfortable and everything's kind of set up in a very sort of easygoing way. And that was really, um, influential for me, the way that, that I wanted to make live electronic music and the kind of vibe that I wanted to create in that, that was different from, you know, performer on stage, everybody looking at them, everything's very formal. Um, I didn't, I didn't want to do that sort of thing. So, I mean, I play seated on the floor a lot and probably the reason that I do that is because of Terry Riley, I guess. <laughs> I saw an interview with him where he said, like, when you're performing, your eyes can be open and you can be looking at stuff, but you shouldn't be able to see anything because mm. you're listening. I think mm -hmm. it's essentially maybe a botched paraphrase, but is is that yeah, something sure. you, you feel as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> my, like, especially nowadays, my ideal setup is to play in like complete darkness or as like near to complete like maybe a little ambient light or just a light so i can see what i'm doing because it's it's so like it's so problematic that sort of setup of like people watching especially for the kind of music that i do where like there are a lot of slow changes and i do a lot of looping so there's a lot of times where like things aren't happening for that they, they can't happen, you know, can't change. And it's so distracting for the listener, I think, to be watching and like having expectations of when things are going to be moving or just like, I don't know, to just like watch somebody do something. It's just, to me, it's defeats the purpose of listening. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice to, to create those sorts of environments either that, you know, where that is disbanded, where the, the listener and performer kind of formality is, is, um, separated or where you have the kind of informal setting where people, you know, they're not sitting in chairs, they sitting on the floor, they can lie down, they can close their eyes, they can whatever, or even like having people in certain types of spaces be able to move around while they're listening. You know, like, um, I've been to a few performances, uh, in like very large spaces where, you know, musicians are set up throughout the space and, and you're invited to walk around and, and you hear it differently based on where you're standing in the room. And things like that, I think, are, that's, you know, like, really enforcing what music should be about at its core, which is listening. You know, it shouldn't be about looking at what's going on. And I don't mean to lump that into the same category as having visual accompaniment to sound, because I think that's a thing on its own. And I have issues with it. Like, I don't like when the worst thing is when you play, like, a show or festival or whatever, 
and people are like, okay, we're just going to throw on some random visuals. <laughs> and it's like, no, you're not like, that's not part of, that's not what I want. You know, like it's, it's just, it's like, I think it's doing um, a disservice to the listener's intellect also by presuming that they don't have the patience or, you know, that they need something else to keep them engaged beyond the sound. And I, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think when visuals are done uh, intentionally, with music, then it's a completely different thing. Then it's almost like watching a movie, you know, where it's like the two are working in tandem, the sound and the visuals are, are both equally important. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a hard thing with the whole like looking aspect. I think it'd be nice to just like sit at the back of the room <laughs> and everybody face the front and then they have no choice but to just like close their eyes. <laughs> yeah. Um... Or do them blindfolds, that might... Yeah, that might help. I've done that before. Have you been to one of those like blindfold gigs? I I have. I didn't do it, which is funny that I'm saying that or suggesting that people should do it because I I think that would be that's almost too much for me. I mean, it's partly like a symptom of the live thing where like you know I like I carry like a purse with me, so I wouldn't want to be blindfolded. Otherwise, I'd be like, oh god, somebody's gonna steal my wallet or something, you know? Mm. And those are always things that you have to consider, I guess, for live performance, but that's almost, yeah, it's almost like too much for me. It's nice to let the listener like sort of be comfortable and, and not feel like they're having like this forced restriction on them. Um, and I think with a lot of music that people would want to close their eyes to anyway, it, it's just a thing that's going to happen. You don't really have to like force them to do it. Yeah. It might be interesting to have people go see like classical music or something like a, a Beethoven symphony and have them be blindfolded. That might be interesting as like an experiment maybe. Um, but yeah, for, for this type of music, I think, I think it wouldn't even really be necessary. Hmm. It's just like people, the, the option, you know, putting them in like a comfortable situation where they feel like they can. You're, you're right in the sense that there's almost, um, in some cases, the implication that going to see live music that's the whole incentive that's the crux it's like you've heard mm -hmm. the record now see what they look like when they're you know when they're performing yeah. but awful <laughs> <laughs> I'm, it's not it's i shouldn't because i'm just as guilty we're like like i was saying earlier i want to see alistair galbraith live i want to see how he plays live you know but i think it's different between like you know as a composer i guess it's kind of you're all when you hear something you're always kind of curious like oh how did they do that or what is it like mm. you know how do they how do they make that sound or whatever um and so it is interesting to a point you know to be able to see what people are doing and and it's it can be quite illuminative illuminative of what you're hearing you know especially if it's something surprising to see how it's being done and especially for somebody like terry riley who was doing you know he's such a, a virtuosic person and he was doing everything that you hear on Shree Camel is live, you know, like all the looping and, and the layering and, and all that is like live takes, which is crazy. So it's interesting to a point, but I feel like it, like I say, it's to a point, you know, where like at a certain time in the performance, you kind of let go of that and then you just listen. So I think when, when both of them are, are working together, then it's, then it's okay. But when it's only about, you know, the, the visual aspects of it, or, or like even worse, like what are they doing or, you know, what notes are they playing? What presets do they have? That's like, 
it's just such a like what's the point of listening you know like you could just you could play music in the background and just watch them noodle around on their instrument and it would be the same thing you know i've played where i've had my back facing the audience and then i've had people say you should really turn around it's it's verging on rude to be honest yeah i've had that too (laughs) really yeah yeah i know it's i had one uh i was playing at a festival once and i was playing this was back when i was taking vintage gear on tour (laughs) and uh I kick myself forever for that. Um, anyway, I was playing this. Uh, it's a EVI. Um, it's made by Steiner. It's called the EVI. It's like a little. Um, it uses trumpet fingering, but it's a synthesizer. Uh, so instead of a keyboard, it just has these buttons on it, and it's very small. And that's why I took it on tours because at the time it was like the smallest thing that I owned that I could put in my bags. And, uh, anyway, I mean, it's small, but it's like, it's a really interesting instrument. It may not look like much, but, you know, historically, I think it's really interesting and it sounds incredible. You know, it's a really powerful synthesizer. And so anyway, I was, I was playing it at this festival and this guy came up to me after and was basically just like, oh, the only reason I came to see you is because I thought you were going to be playing something modular. (laughs) And I didn't even know how to answer that you know that like it shouldn't there's so many things wrong with that statement (laughs) that like first of all it shouldn't be about what you're seeing like it should be about the sound regardless of whether it's coming out of a computer or whether it's coming out of you know a five foot long synthesizer it doesn't matter it should be about the sound you know like i could be playing a giant modular system and it could sound awful that wouldn't make it like good music just because i'm playing like an interesting looking instrument you know so that, especially yeah. in, in like the synth culture and electronic music, that's for me, that's a really problematic thing when people become too, they lose sight of the sound and what's, what's happening in the sound and they get so focused on the gear. And I think a lot of people who make live electronic music struggle with that, like fetishism of what, what the gear is, uh, more so than the sound. Yeah. I mean, for me, with the modular stuff, I start watching and then quickly realise how little I understand about causality with that kind of instrument, and then just my interest goes elsewhere, because I'm like, well, my brain's too tiny to really see a connection between what what they're doing action-wise and the output anyway, so I'm just going to listen. Yeah. Well, good. Well, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, it should be. <laughs> Sarah, this has been great. Thank you so much for um, for sharing your um, your records and your your time with me as well. It's been awesome to have you on. Thank you for asking me. And if people want to see what you're up to, 
listen to some of your music where's best for them to be headed um my website is probably the best thing it's www.saradavachi.com uh i'm the only person with my name so if you just google me nice. <laughs> i'm the only person who showed up uh, but yeah there's links to all my like tour dates and band camp and all that kind of stuff is there great and to everyone listening thank you i'll see you next time <laughs>